0: Okay, um, last week we finished Paul's letter to the church in Corinth known as 1 Corinthians. Um, this week we're going to, and for the next uh, four weeks, a total of five weeks, we're going to do something particular. The norm for our church is just to work through books of the Bible, but every once in a while we take a hiatus and focus on a series Uh, address a particular topic um, that seems pertinent for us, and um, (coughs) whether you know it or not, the Protestant church um, is experiencing an anniversary of sorts this year. It was 500 years ago, October 31st, that Martin Luther pegged his 95 theses to the door of a Wittenberg church and caused a complete transformation in the church at large. Um, and so that we call the Reformation. That's the beginning of the Protestant church. The reason we call it the Reformation is because it wasn't a redirection of the church. Luther didn't come with a new plan or a new way. He didn't respond to the um, the needs of his day. Uh, effectively, he had become a monk, spent a lot of time in the scriptures, which were relatively Uh, inaccessible in Luther's day as they were only available in Latin and copies. This is right around the birth of the printing press, so copies were rare. And so as he was reading the scriptures, he found the church experience he knew to be incongruent with the one presented in the Bible. And so it's a reformation because he sought to reform the church back to how it was envisioned in scripture. And so, We're going to recognize that anniversary for the next five weeks looking at five principles of the Reformation um, that later theologians referred to as the five solas. Sola is a Latin word that means only. And so those five are... Um, basically put together as a sentence, and this is the idea, that God saves us according to the scriptures alone, in Jesus Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, to the glory of God alone. And so really what we're doing is not just commemorating the Reformation, but recognizing the heart and soul of Christianity in these five pillars of the Reformation. This morning we're going to do um, what's called sola scriptura, by the scriptures alone. And so if you have a Bible, please open it up to the book of Jeremiah, chapter 23. If you didn't bring a Bible this morning, you'll find one um, tucked nearby in the back of a pew that you're welcome to use. Jeremiah is an Old Testament prophet, and the index at the very beginning of your Bible should help you find it. feel a bit of irony in what we're going to do this morning because the point of what we're going to talk about this morning is uh, this idea of Scripture alone is really the reason why we just work through expositionally explaining, uh, work through books of the Bible verse by verse and chapter by chapter. Ironically, that's not what we're going to do this morning. Um, and the reason is because this topic Runs through the warp and woof of all of Scripture. Uh, We're going to start in Jeremiah um, and just look at a single verse, but we'll be bouncing around a little bit this morning. Um, But here's the reason why we're starting in Jeremiah it's a couple of things. Uh, First off, the Bible is self referential. I'm sure many of you know about breaking the fourth wall, right? That's when Frank Underwood turns to the audience and starts to speak to them directly through the camera. Self-referential is similar to that. It's when a work, uh, whether it's a fiction, I mean, it almost always requires fiction, but where a work uh, references itself. And so where the author of a book steps out and writes himself into the story. The Bible is tremendously self-referential. One of the primary things the Bible talks about is the Bible, okay? And that's especially true in Jeremiah. In fact, Jeremiah contains 20% of the occurrences of the phrase, Word of the Lord. Over 50 times it's referenced in, in this prophet. And here in Jeremiah 23, he is speaking of the plague that has come upon Israel in Uh, in the false prophets, in these men who have raised up and said, yes, God has sent me. I have a message from them. And for the most part, their message was one of comfort and of peace. And if you're familiar with Jeremiah's ministry, his message was not one of comfort and of peace. And so this chapter is addressing the fact that these men are speaking who are not speaking for God. And so if we were to look at, (coughs) at the whole chapter, you would see this going on. But just For a point of reference, look at verse 16. Thus says the Lord of hosts, do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you, filling you with vain hopes. They speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. They say continually to those who despise the word of the Lord, it shall be well with you. And to everyone who stubbornly follows his own heart, they say, no disaster shall come upon you. And so here he's calling out these false prophets. He's saying don't listen to those who despise the word of the Lord, who have rejected the actual word that God is speaking. He says these ones bring a message of comfort and who do they bring him comfort to? To everyone who stubbornly follows his own heart. Okay, here's, here's the point. What Jeremiah is addressing is the reality that God has spoken. And the answer to the question How do we know God? How do we interpret life? How do we know what it looks like, what to believe, and what to do, and what to follow? That's the context. And it's in the middle of this that God says this. Look at verse 28. Let the prophet who has a dream tell the dream. But let him who has my word speak my word faithfully. What has uh, straw in common with wheat, declares the Lord. And this is what I want to focus on. is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, I feel the weight of our assignment this morning. Some, uh, some issues that your word presents are so important that they're woven through the whole of Scripture. It's almost the, uh, the atmosphere of the Bible more than a single particular message. And so we have lots of work to do this morning, but I pray that we would help to understand what the Bible says about itself, how that formed the context for the Reformation, and what it means for us today. I ask that you'd help us with this in Jesus' name. Like I said, the Reformation effectively begins, the opening bell if the, of the Reformation, if you will, begins with this document, the 95 Theses. And what it is, is it's a reasoned argument against a well-known practice in the church of Martin Luther's day. And that practice involved what's called indulgences. Indulgences were effectively um, sometimes offerings, sometimes pilgrimages, Uh, sometimes going to view a relic, like uh, basically going to a museum and paying the entry fee to it, um, that had benefit spiritually, okay? Specifically, the indulgences that Martin Luther was addressing uh, were financial contributions that went to build the physical buildings of the church in Rome in exchange for a lessening of the sentence of purgatory this afterlife purifying reality that the Catholic Church believed in. And so um, one of the sellers of indulgences famously said, uh, as soon as a coin in the coffer rings, out of, a purgatory, out of purgatory a soul will spring. This is what Martin Luther was responding to. And in summary, the 95 Theses challenges the biblical uh, uh, foundation of that practice. Basically, that it goes not just uh, against the grain of anything we find in Scripture, but it, that it actually cuts at the heart of Scripture. Now, Martin Luther was a Catholic. He was not seeking to start a new religion. In fact, when the Pope began to respond, Luther was convinced that the documents he was reading from the Pope were forgeries. He could not believe that the Pope wasn't on his side on this issue. He was trying to just wave his hand and show an abuse that was going on in the church and bring it to the attention at the church at large. But as the conversation kept going, as the dialogue intensified, um, it became clear that a division was going to be made between those who sought to seek reform in the church and those who maintained the status quo. And so That leads to an event known as the Diet of Worms, which is not a new fad diet. Uh, Worms is a place, and the Diet of Worms was a summoning of Martin Luther where he was called to recant of all of his books against the Catholic Church. And I want to share with you a little bit of what Martin Luther said on that occasion. And so at the Diet of Worms, they called for him to recant of all of his books. He felt the weight of that reality, and he asked for a day to consider it. The next day he came back and he gave a speech both to the representatives of the Catholic Church as well as to the representatives of the empires uh, that made up the known world of that day. And this is what he says. He says, yet as I am a mere man and not God, I will defend myself after the example of Jesus Christ, who said, if I have spoken evil, bear witness against me. But if well, why dost thou strike me? How much more should I, who am but dust and ashes and so prone to error, desire that everyone should bring forward what he can against my doctrine? Therefore, most serene emperor and you illustrious princes and all, whether high or low who hear me, I implore you by the mercies of God to prove to me by the writings of the prophets and the apostles that I am in error." As soon as I shall be convinced, I will instantly retract all my errors, and I myself will be the first to seize my writings and commit them to the flames. And so what he says here is, I know that I'm fallible. I'm just dust and ashes and full of mistakes. And if you can show me from the scriptures that my doctrine is incorrect, I will throw it all away. I'll be the first to burn my books, he says. And then he finishes, this is the very last thing he said In this speech at the Diet of Worms. Since your most serene majesty and you high mightinesses require of me a simple and clear and direct answer, I will give one, and it is this. I cannot submit my faith either to the Pope or to the council because it is as clear as noonday that they have fallen into error and even into glaring inconsistencies with themselves. If then I'm not convinced by the proof from Holy Scripture or by cogent reasons, if I'm not satisfied by the very text I have cited, and if my judgment is not in this way brought into subjection to God's word, I neither can nor will retract anything, for it cannot be either safe or honest for a Christian to speak against his conscience. Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. God help me. Amen. And so what he says here is once again... I cannot just take the authority of the councils. He's referring to the church councils throughout history. I cannot just take the authority of the Pope, the head of the Catholic Church. Um, He says, because they've both been inconsistent, because they've both made mistakes. In fact, they've contradicted one another. He says, my conscience stands here and it stands on the word of God. This is where I have to be convinced. Okay. Now, when we talk about sola scripture, that wasn't so much an issue of the Reformation as it was the context of the Reformation. It was the battleground. As Luther maintains here, he draws a line and he says, just demonstrate from scripture that I'm wrong and I'll recant. This was the battleground and it was also the arsenal. These were the chosen weapons of the duel of the Reformation that Luther had picked was the scripture's. But I want you to notice, even in this quote, which is relatively early in Luther's life, and he built upon this foundation for many years to come. I want you to notice that he, he rec- recognizes that the scriptures stand alone in their authority, specifically because of their nature, right? What does he say? He says, I am fallible and prone to error, The Pope is fallible and prone to error. The councils, collectively, the church tradition is fallible and prone to error. So we must stand solely on scripture. Okay. And so that's where the battle lines were drawn. That's where the argument was. And if you're curious, the doctrine that the Catholic Church maintained was not that the scriptures were not authoritative. Sorry for the double negative. Um but that they were one of two authorities, that scripture and tradition were a pair of equal authorities. And so the Bible couldn't be understood alone, but needed also the tradition as represented in the councils and the Pope to understand it, that there was a written tradition in the Bible and an oral tradition maintained in the apostolic succession of the Catholic Church. And so that's where this idea of sola scriptura comes from. Now, what does that have to do with Jeremiah? Jeremiah refers to the Bible here, the word of the Lord, as a hammer. And he says a hammer that uh, that breaks stuff, basically, that breaks the rock in pieces. Martin Luther loved this verse. He references it many times as being... Um, kind of his understanding of what was going on in his day and age. And what he said is that all of the heretics and all of the Pope and his minions stand against the hammer of God and must eventually be broken. Okay. What does a hammer do? A hammer breaks stuff. Okay. And the challenge he was making was that the only thing that stands in authority, take the hammer and make it a gavel, Right? The only thing that stands in authority is the final judge of truth, of who God is and what he's done and what he wants from us, is the scriptures. He said that tradition was subject to that authority and not a part of that authority. He said that uh, the church didn't create the word of God, but in fact the word of God had created the church, that it precedes it and out of it flowed the church's existence And so this was the context, this was the grounds of of, uh, the Reformation. Every other battle that was fought was fought with these weapons on this place, on this foothold. Just one last side note before we continue. That's the reason why Martin Luther devoted his life to the translation of the Bible into his mother tongue of German. He spent 20 years doing it. And following in his suit uh, was the the English translation of the Bible, uh, was the French translation of the Bible. It was a major note of the Reformation to give the scriptures back to the people. Uh, And William Tyndale said on one occasion, he said, it is my goal to make it so that every farm boy knows the Bible better than the Pope. And so this is, this is a big issue in terms of heritage, but it's also not a new issue. As I argued earlier, uh, Luther wasn't, <coughs> excuse me, building a new foundation for the church. He didn't want to redirect the church, he wanted to reform it. And even if you read through the Bible itself, you'll find these reformations in the Bible. You'll find these occasions where the word of God is rediscovered and reapplied and reoriented, the church or the nation of Israel, is reoriented around the word of God. When we say scripture alone, we don't mean that the Bible is the only authority. In fact, Luther argued against radicals who basically only existed because he opened the door for them and then took his doctrines further. He argued against them his entire life, and they had a doctrine as well. It's one that we call Nuda scripture. Okay, scripture... Uh, by itself, without anything else. And so that took a lot of different forms. Um, One of those forms we know as the regulative principle. In other words, if, um, if you don't see it in the Bible, it shouldn't be a part of your everyday life. When we talk about the Mennonites and the Amish, that's why. Why no buttons? No buttons in the Bible, okay? That's the regulative principle. He argued against that. He explained that tradition, that culture, that experience, that reason are all part of how we discern reality as we know it. But as Matthew Barrett makes clear in his book, Sola Scriptura, he says that all of those functions are ministerial in relationship to scripture's magisterial function. And so when we say scripture alone, the idea here is not that you can only know the world as we know it from the Bible but it's that the Bible is the final authority. Now, why why do we maintain that position? And then we'll talk about why it's important. The first reason we maintain that position is because that's what the Bible declares itself to be. Like I said, the Bible is consistently and tremendously self-referential, We don't have time to walk through all of the Old Testament, so I'm going to focus on the New Testament. It's intriguing, it's interesting, and it's important to look at how the Bible sees itself, how the authors of Scripture see the pages of Scripture, how they see one another, how they respond to other books, how they talk about the Bible. And there may be some in the audience who go, yeah, but that's totally cyclical reasoning. I get that, okay? But I am not so much interested in your opinion about what the Bible is until you understand what the Bible proclaims itself to be. That's where we have to begin. That's where we have to start. So this morning, I'd like to start by looking at how Jesus viewed the scriptures. And just as a side note, Jesus talked about the scriptures a lot. Uh, Last year, I did an interesting study where I took all of the red letter verses from the Gospels, all of the occasions where we find the words of Jesus. And I tried to tag them topically and arrange them to see what Jesus talked about most. That's a really difficult study, okay? And so if you were to look over my process, you may be able to advise me in a better process. However, I did come to find that the Bible itself made it into the top five of things that Jesus talked about. So say I'm wrong by a couple of points. It's still... On the top list of what Jesus talks about. In fact, let me just illustrate it. When Jesus was in arguments and discussions, when people criticized him for who he was and what he was doing, these are the types of things he responded in. He said, Haven't you read what David did? Haven't you read in the law? Have you never read in the scriptures? Have you not read what God said to you? What did Moses command you? What is written in the law? Then what is the meaning of that which is written? In your own law it is written. Is it not written in your law? You err not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. Not one jot or tittle of the law will pass away. Scripture cannot be broken. Okay? These are the words of Jesus. This is his viewpoints on scriptures. And I'd like to show you just one of those passages this morning. Now why is this important? Because if we identify ourselves as Christians, we should read the Bible the way Jesus did. Okay, So turn with me to Matthew chapter 19. There are two very easy mistakes to make when trying to understand who Jesus won. One is to try and make him merely a product of his time. And so if we can find Essenes that were apocalyptic, then we can explain away Jesus. If we understand that Jesus was Jewish, then we can explain away Jesus. What you find in the Gospels, though, is that Jesus is a threat to the status quo. That's why they put him to death, okay? Second, another mistake we make is that we assume what Jesus did was effectively progressive and liberalizing. That he took the teachings of his day and widened it out. And that's a clear component. But the widening he did was a widening of condemnation. He didn't say, these people are no longer sinners. He said, all y'all are sinners, right? He widened the gate of judgment. That's what he did. In fact, just take sexuality in particular. Did you know that Jesus is stricter on sexuality than the rabbis of his day. He's more rigid. He holds them to a deeper line. In fact, he says, yes, the law says you can divorce your wife, but in the beginning it wasn't so. And that's what he's doing here in Matthew 19. But as he does so, he shows us his hand in how he handles the scriptures. And so look with me here um, specifically at verse 4. He answered, have you not read that he who created from them from the beginning made them male and female? Okay, so first notice how he answers this. He says, don't you know what the Bible says? Over and over again, as I made clear to you in that list, the authority in Jesus' life, the battleground for Jesus, was what the scriptures say. But notice what he does here. He says, have you not read when it was written, and then he quotes in verse 5, and said... Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Okay, so that's the actual uh, quotation. It seems relatively normal. In fact, you could read other places in the Gospels where Jesus references this same text for the same reason. But I want you to look a little bit closer. Listen to the way that he talks about this passage, verse 4. He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Who is the speaker in in the verse that Jesus quotes here? The one who made them male and female. Do you see that? Now, here's why that's interesting. If you go back and you look at Genesis chapter 2, that is a narrator comment. If we were to take a traditional approach to who actually penned those words originally, we would say Moses. He takes the words of Moses and he says that that's the word of God. Okay? That's how Jesus saw the scriptures. That's why he says the scriptures cannot be broken. That's why he constantly points to himself and he says, this is being fulfilled in your hearing. Why? Because the prophecies of the Old Testament were faithful because as Jeremiah communicates, they really were the word of God. So they're reliable. He makes a promise and he keeps it and he keeps it in Jesus Christ. Okay? This is how Jesus saw the scriptures. His apostles who he appointed and trained and sent out, maintain the same viewpoint. And it's fascinating to read the apostles and how they handle scripture because, for example, in Acts chapter 1 and 2, they twice reference the Psalms and say, as the Holy Spirit spoke through the prophet David. Okay, now that's striking in and of itself that they take this poem written long before them and attribute it to the Holy Spirit. But more importantly, this isn't, this isn't a thus saith the Lord passage, right? This isn't them just referring to what was recorded, what God said in the Old Testament. They take a man's personal poetry about his own life and they say that it was actually the Spirit of God speaking through him. Listen, turn with me to Paul's letters to Timothy. First off, go to 2 Timothy. Paul here is writing to a young man that he's raised up who works on his ministry team who is currently in Ephesus trying to get things straightened out there. And so he's written him this letter to help him do so. And in the middle of it, he's reminding him uh, his heritage. He's reminding him that his mother and his grandmother raised him in the Old Testament scriptures and he's familiar with these things. And then he provides this commentary in 2 Timothy 3.16. He says, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. He takes these books that predate Timothy's life by by centuries, by even in some cases thousands of years. Just a side note, when the church is handling, for example, the book of Genesis, that's as far removed as it is for us reading their works today. 2000 years. Okay, just a side note. Um, But here, he says that all scripture is breathed out by God. Now, if you have a different translation, it says all scripture is divinely inspired. But that word inspired is slippery, right? We can go to a concert and it's inspiring. We can say that the works of Shakespeare were inspired. Uh, We can be inspired to go and make a work of art. That's not what this word means. The Greek word "theopanusto" involves two parts, pneuma, air, Theo, God. The way that it's parsed, though, means breathed out by God, okay? And so what Paul is not saying here is that the authors of scripture wrote something and then God breathed life into it, like a balloon. What it's actually saying is that these things were expressed out the mouth of God. That's what this phrase uses. Now, how can I be confident in that? Because we have another place where Panusto is used and parsed differently, and that's when Paul is still breathing threats against the church. That means that he's actually breathing in threats, by the way. It's his lifeblood. He's living off of his persecution of the church. But we have, side by side, in the same book, these two things. And what does he say here? He says, all Scripture's origin is in God, and that's what makes it profitable. Okay? Now, clearly here he's talking about the Old Testament, But we have another letter from Paul, written to Timothy, just a few years earlier, and I'd like you to turn there. So go over to 1 Timothy, to chapter 5. Now, once again, he's writing to Timothy, and here specifically, he's he's helping them to understand the role of the pastor or the elder in the church, and he says in chapter 5, verse 17, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of a double honor, especially those who labor in the preaching and teaching, for the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Now, here's what's so striking about this. He quotes two verses here. The first one is from Deuteronomy. Like Jesus, he says, if you want to understand how pastors should be treated, understand what the scripture says. He quotes Deuteronomy. Do you know where the second verse is found? The gospel of Luke. Luke, Paul's travel companion. Luke, Paul, uh, you know, had traveled together and he quotes from Luke's book and refers to it as scripture on par with the book of Deuteronomy. Okay. Now, I know we're only adding pieces to the puzzle here, but let me throw a few more in your mix. Uh, In the mix, Uh, Peter, the Apostle Peter says in 2 Peter. Now, we don't have time to look very closely at the context. This is in chapter one, but he basically starts by saying, that we didn't give to you cleverly devised fables, but were eyewitnesses of the glory of Jesus. So he takes his own experience as an apostle, and he says, we're not making this up. We were there. We saw it. But as he goes on, this is how he finishes in verse 20. He says, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And he says all of the prophecies, which he includes the apostles in his own camp, he says they don't come from us, but we were carried along by the Holy Spirit. He says it's both about the Old Testament and about the New Testament. In fact, look at what he does just a few chapters later in chapter 3. He says in chapter 3:15, "And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you, according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks of them in these matters." So here's Peter's second letter referencing the letters of Paul, Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. Notice what he says here. There are some things in them that are hard to understand which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. Do you see what he does there? He takes the letters of Paul and he puts them in a drawer labeled the scriptures. And he says, the people who twist the other scriptures also twist the scriptures that Paul wrote. Okay. Now, we're only getting started. I could seriously do this all day. Okay. (laughs) We don't have time to do so, but what I want you to understand is that the Bible is self-referential and declares itself to be originating in God, inerrant and infallible, and authoritative for life, practice, and belief. Okay. That's why the Bible over and over again says, and the Lord said, and the Lord said, thus said the Lord, however, A lot of times we read that, and we read the Bible as if it's a record of God's revelation. If you've got the teeth to cut through it, Benjamin Warfield's Authority and Inspiration in the Scriptures is one of the most profound books I've ever read on the topic, but it is hardcore, okay? He looks at a lot of the things we've looked at this morning and more, and he comes to, I think, what is a very helpful conclusion. This is what he says. He says, Scripture is conceived from the point of view of the writers of the New Testament not merely as the record of revelations, but as itself a part of the redemptive revelation of God. Not merely as a record of the redemptive acts by which God is saving the world, but as itself one of these redemptive acts, having its own part to play in the great work of establishing and building up the kingdom of God. In other words, Warfield says that the Bible is not just a record of the fact that God is speaking it is God speaking it's not just a record of God's redemptive acts but one of them okay the Bible declares God wants to be known and we can be convinced of that because there's a Bible like I said I know that sounds like cyclical logic logic all I'm trying to get you to understand this morning is that this is how the Bible sees itself That means for us as Christians, if we follow in the tradition of the apostles, if we claim Jesus as our Lord and Savior, this matters. Listen, I am not convinced that you can be subject to the authority of Jesus and stand over the authority of his word. And his word takes all of scripture, the words of his apostles to follow. Just look at the gospel of John. He takes all of it and he says that it is divinely inspired, that it is inerrant and infallible, that it is the authority in our life, the final, the last, the ultimate authority, the hammer of God, okay? Now, we live in an autonomous age that is anti-authority. Our general approach of life is the role of skeptic and actually the Bible's not against skepticism. We don't have time to turn there this morning, but sometime ask me about the faithful Bereans in Acts chapter 17 who search the scriptures to see if these things were so. They're skeptics. I'll prove it later, okay? The Bible's not against skepticism. The Bible's full of people who are asking questions, struggling with doubt. Read the Psalms. That's not the issue. But the Bible also requires that if you're to know God, you have to be self-skeptical as well. Here's the thing. Either God has revealed himself and therefore we can trust what we know of him or he has not and we have no hope. This is a black and white issue. Okay. So what about the other authorities in life? We don't generally think of them as ultimate authorities. When we challenge the authority of scripture because it says something that makes us uncomfortable because we don't know what to deal with it and let me give you another aside, recognizing that the Bible is authoritative, even that it is perspicuous, which I love as a word because it means clarity, and I can't think of a less clear word than perspicuous, right? Uh, but, but the perspicuity of scripture is something that the Reformation maintained, that it could be understood by the everyman. That didn't mean everywhere equally, it didn't mean that it didn't require interpretation, but it did mean that the Bible's goal is to make God known, and it does it, okay? So I'm not saying this morning that you don't need to interpret the Bible. I'm just saying that you're not done interpreting the Bible until you allow it to interpret yourself, okay? That's what makes it the authority. I'm not saying that you can't use reason in understanding the Bible. I'm saying once you've exhausted your reason, you still have to say, thus saith the Lord and respond, I'm not saying that you can't read the Bible through culture because you can't not read the Bible through culture. You are who you are. And you bring all of those experiences, all of that understanding, all of those other belief systems into the Bible. You smuggle them in, yes, but you can't leave them at the door. It's impossible. Okay? But, but eventually, you have to complete the hermeneutical circle of communication. You come in as you are with a preconceived idea of what life is and what the Bible says. If you're going to complete understanding the Bible, you have to allow it to change and inform who you are, okay? You have to walk the rest of the lap, okay? And you say, but, but does it matter when we're fallible interpreters? Does it really mean anything? Gosh, you are so postmodern, okay? But once again, if God can be known then the answer is yes. doesn't mean there's not difficulty. Not only is there the inspiration of Scripture, but also illumination. The same God who spoke also helps us in the hearing. And even you go, but yeah, but there's so much diversity and interpretations in the church. Yes, on many issues. But on the heart and soul, not so much. Where the center is, that God, who's triune, Father, Son, and Spirit created this world, that he's righteous and holy and recognizes that there's consequences for sin that he must meet out in his justice, that he took care of that problem by becoming a man and sending his son to live the life we couldn't live, to die the death that we deserve, and that he was resurrected from the dead. There's not very much vagueness on that. There's not a lot of debate or argument about that. If you want to have a different interpretation than me, that's fine. In fact, like Luther, I will stand here and tell you this morning that I am fallible. But, but, I'm afraid that many of us take those other authorities, known or unknown, and use them not to explain the Bible, but to explain it away. And I'm not interested in an explanation of Scripture that leaves it no longer Scripture. I'm not interested in an interpretation of Scripture that makes it, therefore, of no importance to us today. As we've already seen, all Scripture is profitable. As we've already seen, this is the Word of God. Have you not read? Okay. In Luther's day the other authority on the table was tradition. And all he said is, yes, tradition is important. In fact, he stood against the radicals who tried to throw out the baby with the bathwater of everything the church did, and he just said, you're crazy. There was a man... um, Oh, shoot. It's hard to keep track of all the German names. A man named Karlstadt, who was a disciple of Luther's. And on an occasion... Martin Luther went to preach in his church and to step into the pulpit, he had to step over a crucifix that had been shattered on the floor, okay? And and that made him severely uncomfortable. Karlstadt was an iconoclast. He took every icon, every relic and destroyed it and busted it up. The way that he went about communion, he, he changed everything. And Luther said, no. He said, the Pope the Pope makes everyone captive by telling you what to do and so he makes the the conscience of man captive by telling you what to do and Carlston does the same thing by telling you what not to do but it was all on his authority and it had nothing to do with scriptures and he was very sensitive to the conscience of the world he wanted to bring the word to bear but he wanted to bring it patiently okay and so even today if you're joining me this morning and you disagree this is not a line in the sand conversation but it is the conversation that must be had. It's the place where it must start. And when we start to pick at scripture and become the authority that selects this is of God and this is of not, when we start to subject the scriptures and say, we know better today because we're progressive or whatever it is, you don't just create two piles, scripture and not scripture. You pull on a thread and the thread unravels. Because, one, this is how the Bible sees itself, completely and fully and holistically. And two, if you're the final arbiter, you know very well how fallible you are. We have to watch out for what C.S. Lewis called historical snobbery, that we honestly believe that we're the first culture in history whose grandkids won't think we were crazy for thinking those thoughts that we finally have attained and so therefore we know better and we can be the perfect and infallible standard of truth. Karl Barth responded much to the modern ideas and the drift of the church away from these things, the element of suspect that was brought to the Bible that basically said the Bible's just another book, it's another fragment of history and so we need to apply the same rules we apply to anything else. It doesn't get a pass just because it's religious. Uh, Carl Barth responded to that and he picked up on a phrase of Augustine another reformer in the church another one who called back to the scriptures and he said ecclesia reformata semper referendum the reformed church always reforming Barth picked up on that idea and said that we should be semper referendum that's what happened in Luther's day he Held his life, his church experience, the things that he believed, the way that he behaved. He held it up to scripture and he went, man, we're off course. And he reformed. Here's something I've observed in our own time. I don't know if you're familiar with the emergent church, but it provides a very good example of what we're talking about. Okay? The emergent church came and they looked at the culture we live in, the questions that were being asked. And they said the answers the church is presenting are deficient. They don't make any sense. And so they came up with new answers. And the response of the fundamentalist movement was to hold the line and say, those are not questions we ask. Okay? Semper referendum means ask the questions. Just go back to the word for answers. Okay? And I am thoroughly convinced. I am thoroughly convinced, like Karl Barth was, like Luther was, like Augustine was, that getting back to the scriptures is a constant need with every new generation. That we do smuggle fallible culture and experience in and we use it oppressively. That the Bible becomes, instead of something that overturns all authorities except itself, a tool to maintain the status quo. I believe all those things. But the only hope out of that mess that is authoritative has to be the one that has the backing of God, has to be the one. This is how Chuck Smith, who started Calvary Chapel, put it. He said, look, it makes perfect sense to me that there's an infinite God at an infinite distance, and we as finite beings can't bridge that gap. He says, but I have no problem believing that an infinite God can bridge that gap. The question here is not anything more or anything less than does God desire to make himself known? If the answer is yes, that's why sola scriptura matters, okay? Now, application, a couple of things. First off, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. That's what Paul says in the book of Romans. Because God has spoken, we can believe In other words, our foundation for salvation as presented in the Bible is the fact that God can be known and has spoken and can be believed because he's trustworthy, okay? And this is such good news because God didn't just do something in a corner secretive and go, I hope they understand what this all means. He interpreted it for us. He didn't just go through the motions and set an open door somewhere in the universe that if we just walk through, we'll get to know him. No, he He drew a map to the door. And it also means that no matter how shakable your faith is, if you stand on the promises of God, you stand firm. If all you have is, I hope me as a fallible person is getting this right, then you have no foundation to stand on. When we say on Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand, that's the Christ as proclaimed in scripture. That's the Christ according to the word of God. In fact, the living word who became flesh, as as John says about Jesus in John chapter one. Second, if you were a Christian, the final authority has to be left to God. And that final authority, the infallible authority, is the word of God. Have you taken your opinions, your lifestyle, the things you believe about God and the universe we live in, have you brought them to bear against the hammer of scripture? And that's not easy. And I don't think you'll ever do it completely or comprehensively all of us for the rest of our lives have to label ourselves as still learning, which also means still wrong. It won't be until Jesus returns or until we die and are reunited with him that we will know just as we we are known, right? And so there's a progressive reality to this, but the process of communication is, speak, Lord, your servant is listening, hearing, seeking to understand what he says and bringing that to bear. Have you done that? Are there places in your life that you're holding away from the confines of Scripture? Now, does Scripture address everything? Does it tell you what career to have? Or, um, you know, does it lay out the, the methodology for turning coal into diamonds? No. There's lots of things in your life that aren't touched upon. But in the words of Mark Twain, who was not a Christian, who was a skeptic, it's not the things I don't understand in Scripture that scare me, but the things I do. Let's just start there. Let's start with the things that the Bible clearly addresses. Have you brought the hammer of the word to bear? Another thing, if the word of God is where the power is, where the authority is, then we can trust it to do the heavy lifting. Charles Spurgeon, quoting on uh, teaching on that verse in Jeremiah 23, he says, It doesn't take a lot of an education to swing a hammer. He says, and it's not the education and knowing how the hammer, that makes the hammer work. And he says, yes, but I want an attractive hammer. I want one with a mahogany handle. He says, that's ridiculous. A hammer needs to be swung. It needs to strike. And so it means that we can confidently not have to try and find reasonable arguments. Not have to demonstrate cultural cultural congruence, not have to present scientific evidence as the final arbiter that demonstrates the truth of Christianity. In another sermon, Spurgeon says, you know what, the truth is like a lion. If I had a lion in a cage, I wouldn't feel the need to defend it. I'd just let it out and it can defend itself. And don't take that for an oversimplification, because I think that Christianity is reasonable and rational. I think that Christianity corresponds with science I think that our culture uh, is both in some places congruent with scripture and those things should be proclaimed and celebrated and in other places incongruent. But ultimately, the power, the thing that changes lives is not your incredibly well-rehearsed argument. And if it is, someone else smarter than you, more clever than you and more eloquent than you will argue those people right back out of the kingdom because it is only by the word of God that there comes faith so be encouraged in that proclaim the word when people have questions and struggle take them to the Bible and say let's read it together let's see what the scripture says bring them to the heart and the soul and the center of it they read passages and they go what in the world I could never believe a Bible that teaches a doctrine like that and say okay let's start at the center if Jesus isn't alive if there's no resurrection then who cares what we think about this issue But if he is, and he proclaims this word to be what he proclaims it to be, then you have to deal with that. But don't cart before the horse this, okay? So let's just see what the scripture says about Christ. Let's just see what the scripture says about the big issues of humanity. If you're not a Christian this morning, there is a long road that I don't have time to deal with because before you can even ask these questions, you have to go, okay, well, is the Bible even reliable in what it records, That's where we have to start. When the gospel authors write about Jesus, was there really a Jesus? Did he really say these things? Did he really do those things? And that road can be walked, and I think the evidence is pretty convincing, okay? But once you've done that, once you've looked at the reliability, then you have to read it and go, okay, if it's reliable, what am I going to do with the things that Jesus said and did? And you're still going to be left with the total reality that we're talking about that we've called sola scriptura, but here's the point, and we'll close this morning. God requires, according to his word, for a true encounter with him, humility. Okay? And ultimately, hiding behind every other authority is autonomy says that this book is something I will stand over and give judgment to. But the Bible presents a very different view of the universe. Just to be clear, it says that God is not the one who's lost and needs to be found, you are. Okay? It says that God is not the rebel who needs to be conformed into your righteous image, you are. And so even tentatively approaching, could this really be the word of God? You have to do it on the Bible's own terms, which is the same thing science does when it presents a hypothesis, okay? You don't test a hypothesis by all the things that it isn't. You have to test it as if it were. If you want to know if the Bible is the word of God, you have to play by its rules, which means that you have to open it wanting to hear, not just to read and to study. You can't treat it like a frog on the operating table and just dissect it. You have to enter into a conversation and say, behind this word is a living God who is speaking. And like I said, that is tremendously good news. I'll close here. I'm sure that many of you are familiar with the explanation of the world as we know it and the difficulty of knowing the truth that says, but really... God or the truth or the universe as we know it is like an elephant and we're just like blind men and one of us has the trunk and says oh I found a great snake and another finds the foot and says no it's a giant tree and another hugs it around the center and says no it's a big living breathing house right first off when that story is initially told the original one that goes back there's a king who calls those blind men in the king is not blind And to be honest, when we use that illustration today, we are assuming that we're the kings and we know there's a whole elephant there and you're the blind ones. So you're only grasping at part. You don't escape it. But what we're talking about this morning is something different. We're talking about the elephant speaking and saying, let me tell you who I am. If all we're doing is grasping in the dark, another illustration I've heard is that we are all living in a church with stained glass windows and the light is coming through the church windows and we're each standing around different windows and going, this is what the truth looks like as presented through this color lens. But all, we're all seeing the same light. The Bible says, no, that light became a man, walked through the doors of the church and said, I've come, I am the light, let me tell you about yourself. That changes the rules And so the hammer of God in the word of God is incredibly good news because God is and desires to be known and has proven himself faithful and trustworthy and has told us who we are, who he is. Let's pray. God, I'm so sensitive to all of the baggage that can derail the reality of these things, of the constant human plague of the yabats, and even those in one sense we need not be afraid of, as long as they're not left as excuses not to see. I know, Lord, that if there's questions, there are answers, and if we seek, we shall find. But I also know that we're prone to make justifications to stay on the couch. We're prone to leave the word left, unread, undealt with, unquestioned, because then we can live the life that we're already comfortable living. But in the words of John Wesley, Wesley, if God has revealed himself in a book, give me that book. I pray, Lord, that that would be our heart. That we bring all of our skepticism to bear as long as we would be self-skeptical. That we would approach with humility enough to really seek. And that we would do it over and over again knowing that instead of our role as Christians being conforming the word to our own image or the image of our culture, that you're conforming us through your word into the image of your son. And so I pray, Lord, that we would kneel day after day week after week before the hammer of God. And that it would break us and rebuild us and restore us and align us with the truth. I pray, Lord, that we would be a people of the scriptures alone. In Jesus' name, amen.